This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. In this episode, we have invited Marianne Fosalucha, our PhD student who is researching the photographic collection of Edward Atkinson Honer in the National Trust for Scotland. Marianne studied art history and iconography as an undergraduate student and museum studies and museology for her master's degree, both at the École du Louvre in Paris. Now in her second year of the PhD study, she has put up an exhibition titled E.A. Honnell, a painter behind the camera in Durham Castle, Aberdeenshire, from May 1st to December 19th this year. Welcome, Marian. Thank you. So uh, before we get to talk about your research, I'm really curious about your life before that. So from your bio, I see that you have had some very interesting life. Uh, if I can say, <laughs> studying in Paris and then working in Scotland, you know. So could you tell us a little bit about that journey before Aberdeen? Yes, well, first of all, let me thank you for inviting me here. Um, but to answer your question, I so I started life as obsessed with dinosaurs. I could tell you hundreds of names without any kind of mistake. And it's basically slowly from this obsession, I discovered first that you can have other things in the ground, and that's archaeology, and then that you can put other things in a museum. Um, and that was, you know, discovering art in general. So from there, I pretty much built up a passion for art, museums and heritage. So I tried to pursue it. And uh, in France, one of the best schools to go to um, when you want to work in museums is the Ecole du Louvre. So that's uh, where I started. But I then got the opportunity to do uh, an Erasmus year in Leiden University in the Netherlands, which was fantastic to, you know, to live there, to discover the culture. Um, and, you know, you always get a different perspective when you leave your own country. Yeah, uh, this, you're right, yes. Yeah, kind of outsider uh, uh, point of view which I really enjoyed. And uh, when the Erasmus year finished, I didn't really want to go back to France just yet. So I joined a, a language assistant program. And to be honest, the only country that didn't require uh, the TOEFL language test was the United Kingdom. So that's where I went. And uh, I got sent to Scotland, which was uh, my first wish. Uh, so I started in Dundee, taught French for a year. And so when my contract ended, uh, I tried to go back to, you know, my branch, my roots, so heritage. And I was very lucky because at that time, the uh, National Trust for Scotland was recruiting for a nationwide inventory project called Project Reveal. Mm -hmm. uh, and I joined as part of a 30-ish people team. And we basically went around each and every property of the trust. My team was um, Aberdeenshire and mm, Angus. I see. Mm. And we basically 
in each property, we went in each room and we scanned every object, recording it in the database. And uh, from there, it's at the end of this project that uh, a little team in partnership with the Trust, uh, the University of Aberdeen and uh, the University of Edinburgh got together to um, try and put up this project of working on the photographic collection of uh, Edward Hornell. Because it is in the care of the Trust, so the Trust was very much involved. Um, it was initially to be a, a doctoral training partnership, so AHRC funded. Yes. Uh, and they were recruiting a student, you know, to carry on that project. Mm-hmm. And I just was very, very lucky because I applied to it and uh, happened to get it, which I didn't think would be possible because, yeah, in my weird, uh, let's say, journey, I didn't have a master thesis. Uh, for complicated reasons. Mm. And I was convinced that I could never do a PhD because in France, if you don't have a master thesis, you're not going to be able to start a PhD. So it was a huge and very great Mm. surprise. (laughs) That's a fascinating journey. And so your your research is on uh, E.A. Honnell's collection. Can you tell us uh, just briefly about who he is? So... uh, Hornell was born in uh, Australia, actually, mm. uh, from British parents who had tried to go to Australia to make their fortunes, but it didn't quite work out. So they very quickly came back to Scotland and moved back in Kirkubri, mm. uh, where uh, they had been leaving from. And there he had a very normal, you know, classic uh, education, but then was sent to the Edinburgh School of Arts which he didn't quite enjoy. He felt it was really like stilted, just copying for, you know, from marbles and all of that. Not really interesting. He went to the Académie Royale des Beaux-Arts in Belgium afterwards, which was uh, for him much more interesting, discovered a a good use of colour that he very quickly implemented in his own work. And when he came back to Scotland, he started working on subjects that were very um, local at first, like um, a view of his garden in Kirkubri or uh, peasants working the fields around Kirkubri. He then met uh, George Henry, with whom he quickly formed a very um, good artistic partnership, very fruitful. They worked together on what might be one of his most well-known pieces, uh, bringing in the mistletoe, which is uh, a huge painting on uh, a Celtic procession bringing in, you know, the mistletoe, as the the name uh, suggests. Quickly after that, uh, he went to Japan with George Henry, um, uh, with funds from his uh, dealer, Alexander Reed. And that was like a pivotal time for him after Japan when he came back he his uh, Japanese paintings proved extremely successful and it really established a base for him um, to work on you know very colorful uh, and happy um, and slightly exotic uh, paintings that were very successful and he started reprodu- reproducing sorry that method Uh, with Scottish models first, uh, but also with uh, models from Sri Lanka, where he went in 1907. 
and then Japan and Myanmar, where he went in 1921. And from there, his painting became very formulaic. It was pretty much always some kind of variation of young girls in idyllic settings, uh, in very, very colorful and happy environment. It's interesting because the, you never you, you never mention him being a photographer, he, uh, him being a painter, that makes sense. But your research is actually on his uh, photography collection. So is yes. he, was, he a, was he a painter or was he a photographer? So officially, and how he presented himself was as a painter. His photographic practice was more there to support his painted practice. Basically, even though he has, well, he amassed throughout his life a massive collection, we're talking, you know, 1700 images, um, he never really discussed photography, he didn't uh, display his photographs, they never were in exhibitions because that was not their point. Um, and even if you know there was a, a an ongoing debate uh, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, you know, is photography an art or not? Is it just mimicking life? He never really took position uh, on that, at least not that I have uh, found in any of his writing. I think that for him, photography was more a tool, you know, kind of a how you would use a sketchbook to prepare your paintings. He used photographs. And that's why he never really considered himself as a photographer, because photography was in service of his painting. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, uh, his uh, photography collection that you are researching. What are the main subjects of his interest uh, in his collection? Well, as the photographs are kind of a database of motifs, poses and items, the themes of the photographs very much mirror um, with the themes of the paintings. So we're talking most of the time, girls and women, um, mostly between 10 and 15. Mm -hmm. Well, we do not have uh, the names and identity of the models, so it is all an estimate. The collection can be divided, well, pretty much geographically in a way. Uh, the biggest group of photographs is the one from Scotland. Um, Hornell photographed mostly in his home and studio of Broughton House, uh, but there are also quite a few images uh, captured of girls playing in the lovely landscapes around Kukubri. In terms of numbers, uh, photographs from Sri Lanka make the second biggest groups. Uh, there, he had an interest for uh, work, like tea picking, pearl fishing, or and lace making, although uh, pearl fishing did not make it into his paintings, as well as uh, daily life activities like uh, carrying water, making music, or praying. The third group are images from Japan, uh, quite a few of which have uh, actually been acquired and uh, not taken by himself. There it is overwhelmingly photographs of geisha, uh, whether dancing, playing music, walking in the streets, just looking pretty and wonderful in great vegetation, all, all of that uh, kind of things. But there are a few uh, landscapes as well. 
And finally, uh, the smallest group is from Myanmar, where he took only about 25 to 30 images, if I'm correct, uh, all of dancers or musicians. You do have a few uh, as well uh, pictures of cattle, of uh, vegetation to use as um model for his painting. But yeah, that, that's pretty much covering um, all of the collection. So it seems like based on what you're, what you're saying that Honor was very interested in uh, photographing uh, women and girls in most, mostly working class and also a chunk, a chunk of his collection or uh, was uh, about the the girls in Sri Lanka, you know, so, so in the in the in the east. Do you see that that, that uh, there was kind of reflection of his fascination of the certain uh, working class and also uh, certain gender and also certain locality, for example, like east. Do you see that tendency there? I think there is definitely a specific interest, yes, towards um, girls and women in general and exotic settings. So first Sri Lanka, then Japan, which probably was, you know, the matrix of his uh, interest for the East and Myanmar, um, lastly. That is why the focus, well, some of the foci, foci um, of my uh, research are uh, gender and otherness because there is, I feel, something to ask about the fact that, uh, you know, a, a middle-aged, uh, rather well-off, so middle upper class um, British man was taking dozens and dozens of pictures of girls um, and uh well of girls at home and abroad i think it was first of all i want to add that there is very very probably nothing weird to think about because whenever i say oh he has you know hundreds of, of pictures of girls people <laughs> always raise an eyebrow yes no there is no proof of that um but it was more kind of to build these models as the other. You have to think that, you know, at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, industrialization was, you know, going full speed in, in Britain. And a lot of people, especially, you know, rich industrials and all of that, were getting very nostalgic for, you know, a, a simpler time. Mm -hmm. And the figure of the girl, at least in Victorian, um, um, morals was pictured as you know, the sheltered flower who is protected from the world, doesn't right. go out yeah. and all of that. So by taking pictures of girls and then turning them into paintings, he was really depicting the other uh, of, you know, rich men, upper class industrial mm -hmm. by taking, you know, young girls in idyllic settings. It was really... I think feeding on this nostalgia for uh, for those simpler times, and add to that the huge impact of Japanese in Europe in general. So this huge craze for Japan. Um, he says himself that it is one of the reasons he went to Japan because it was so popular and he was kind of swept in the movement. So he was, you know, an acute businessman. I would say to pick subjects that would really talk to his um, customers. 
was he successful uh, as an artist? Um, at the beginning of his career, uh, so up until, you know, I would say the, the uh, first trip to Japan in 1893 to 94, moderately, <laughs> he was very much in line with, you know, the cliche of the um, artist without money that is struggling from uh, painting to painting, hoping to sell it and all of that. But still had uh, a few breakthroughs here and there, including with, you know, bringing in the mistletoe, which uh, was quite a, quite a big break. But after coming back from Japan, he had an exhibition put up at his dealers, Alexander Reed, uh, and pretty much all of the paintings, bar from, if I remember, uh, three or four were sold, which was a huge hit because there were I think if I remember well, uh, between 40 and 45. So you have to imagine like selling 40 paintings in one go that's was a, huge. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah. Um, he didn't always had, you know, that huge spike of success. But after that, he kind of built a steady um, customer base that right. was interested in his declination of you know young girls in either exotic settings or you know very um lovely and idyllic scottish settings so he wasn't like insanely successful but he he still you know managed to maintain a steady source of income um and uh provide his base of customers with paintings that remained successful pretty much until he died and in Kukubri, he was m one of the most well-off people and one of the most important people around. So, yeah, all things considered, I think that at least in his own mind, he he was successful. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, these buyers, uh, they are there are many well-off, uh, the urban, uh, you know, the upper class uh, kind of a people. Uh, Yes, mostly. So he joined, you know, big private collections uh, like the collection of William Burrell. Um, but also he was acquired by uh, quite a few uh, museums around Britain. So mainly in Scotland, but not only. And he had a few successful forays here and there in um, uh, exhibitions in Belgium. Uh, and in the USA, you have a few of his paintings here and there in the USA where the same, let's say, type, general type of people. Um, so, you know, well-off white men um, acquired some of his painting and they have since then um, entered some of the American collections. Let's maybe um, change our gear and talk about your research and, you know, as a practicalities so how do you how do you go about researching the collection it seems it seems a huge collection and maybe can you explain to us briefly about you know your methodology in the, at practicalities if you will yes so you are extremely right in uh, saying that this is a huge collection because 1700s picture i could never process that on my own it would probably take me far more than three years so as I knew I couldn't process them all in my head, I turned to a qualitative data analysis software called Envivo. So it allowed me to encode each image with information, like for example, the model's expression, the props he used, the number and gender of the models, etc. as well as technical aspects like 
if it is a glass plate negative or a print, these, these kind of things. And by processing all of the images like that in, um, in the software, I was also able to create profiles for the models and find, you know, the photos in which each of them appeared. Cause that was one of the big problems is that you could see before that there were some reoccurring models, but it was very difficult to tie them all to each of their photograph, which the software allowed, which was amazing. Right. So what this work gave me was a searchable database, as well as numbers and statistics spanning the whole collection. So it makes linking the photographs with the paintings they inspired much easier. And um, as it is uh, also something I can do in the software, uh, linking the paintings together uh, with the photographs, I mean, it allows me to have everything in one place and see patterns emerge much more easily. So that's how I go about processing the uh, collection itself. And then you add to that, I, I feel kind of the <laughs> mandatory background reading that every <laughs> PhD student goes through. So photography, theory, um, mm. Um, material culture, uh, so Elizabeth Edwards, uh, questions of Orientalism with Edward Said. So all of these readings uh, inform how uh, I, I perceive the photographic collection, what I look for in each image, and um, give me keys for interpreting uh, the data I obtain with uh, NVivo. Right, that's uh, that's fascinating. So, yeah, uh, uh, of course, the collection that you have, uh, this is a huge collection. It's all, if you say, analog and material-based. But then in order to uh, have, again, gain a insight and, you know, in-depth uh, understanding of the collections, you you need to use technology. So this, um, this yes. area or the field called digital humanities is really, uh, you know, the in action with your research, isn't it? Yes, it very much uh, feels like it. I'm also uh, quite indebted to the uh, digi digitation uh, program that was conducted in 2015 oh, on wow. the Hornell collection, mm -hmm. because if this hadn't been done, because uh, now there is, you know, a, a digital image of each of the photographs, whether glass plate negatives or prints, uh, I wouldn't have been able to import all of that into NVivo because I wouldn't have had files uh, to do that. So I feel that a lot of this PhD has been made possible thanks to technology, whether digitization or softwares that, you know, allow to um, juggle with massive amount of data like NVivo because, you know, it is said that, you know, the brain is one of the most amazing computers, but I cannot process <laughs> 1700 images and keep all of these, uh, this data in my head and remember all of that. So yeah, a, a lot, um, a lot of the hard work is mm. done by the software, I must admit. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, um, Yes. Uh, so you let's talk about your supervisors. So, so uh, your supervisors are Dr. Ernier Lakin and Professor Ed Welch. Uh, they are co-supervising uh, your research. And uh, I wonder, uh, this might be quite interest, interesting uh, to other colleagues, uh, the other PGR students, uh, because the building a good relationship with with uh, with your supervisor is one of the key elements uh, towards towards the success of your research, isn't it? So, uh, how are you 
how are you three working together uh, for your project? What's your, do you have any strategy or any kind of a habitual way of working with them? And maybe, you know, uh, to, to build a good relationship and uh, continue that relationship for your project? So I think that the one key to uh, our relationship has been honesty uh, for the three of us because um, honesty as in, you know, how I feel and how I function. Uh, a good example is that I am very bad with deadlines, um, not necessarily, you know, missing them, but it's just that if it's writing, for example, I'm going to research, research, research until we get like two, three days before the deadline. And then I cram all the writing in that time, which is extremely stressful. Um, and I realized very quickly that, you know, at a PhD scale, it is not an option. I cannot write a full PhD in say like a week or two. Uh, so when we started working together, you know, I honestly told them about all of that. And I have to say that I feel very lucky because bo both Anya and Ed are amazingly kind and understanding people. Um, and we worked, you know, from this honesty, uh, from how, uh, how to find the best way to proceed for me. And what we came to was uh, we have regular meetings in normal times, uh, about once a month in pandemic time, uh, when I, I felt, you know, very isolated at home. Um, it was one every two weeks, especially because I was struggling a bit to, you know, with motivation and all of that kind of a pandemic burnout kind of thing. So every two weeks was very helpful. And each meeting, we set up little objectives for uh, the next one. So it can be, you know, a little bit of writing. It can be uh, having read this or that chapter or this book, or it can be uh, having processed that many images in the collection. Uh, so all of these little objectives, uh, when we come let's say two, three days before the meeting, I would send a little um, summary update or whatever relevant to them. And then we would discuss it uh, during the meeting and then go about it again, just repeat it. And it works really well for me because at least instead of, you know, massive deadlines that become very stressful, I just have a lot of very small deadlines. And um, it also allows me to touch base with them uh, very regularly and again being honest about uh you know my feelings have i managed to work well this time not well why and then we can really work from there together to either find ways to accommodate or you know determine better suited objectives so it's really you know touching base very fre frequently um to to keep adapting to um the, either the state I'm in or the amount of work I can put in. And it has really, really worked well. And I'm very grateful for having two amazing supervisors like Anya and Ed. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it seems like uh, based on what you're saying, the two two elements are kind of a key to um, to the to this uh, building up and then uh, establishing good relationship, uh, especially for you and uh, Anya and Ed is the one, one is the honesty. Yes. So we are on the on, uh, you know, you guys are all on the same page. And the yes. second is that a um, structure each uh, each uh, uh, supervision and meetings 
the, you know mm. in a small way so that you know bit yeah. by bit like uh, small steps so i think that's a that's a, those are really good advice uh for our students it, it really works for me because a phd can be a really daunting task so chipping little bits of it you know has a very reassuring feeling <laughs> it feels much more doable <laughs> what's your hope uh, for your research uh what you know if you will what significance what impact do you want to make with you with your research so i feel that one of the biggest hopes i have is to give a bit more agency to the models in hornell's photograph um because they are kind of nameless persons whose face are you know all over his paintings but we know nothing about them uh, and it's probably going to be quite tricky to find a lot of information but you know talk a bit more about um them about their relationship with hornell about how he uh, in his kind of position of uh, power as you know the the artist the notable um uh, used their image to well become quite successful um, and so discuss a bit how how this worked, how this process worked, and how um, what are the things at play uh, when going from the photograph to the painting. So yes, talking a bit more about the models and a tiny bit less about Hornell. But in this way, you know, really informing uh, Hornell's practice, understanding how it worked. So a better understanding of the artist as well. In terms of significance and impact, well, that would be that, that, you know, people come out either of, uh, I'm thinking of the exhibition, you know, because it's it's <laughs> quite a, a big thing at the moment, but um, either of the exhibition or a talk or, you know, whatever way they engage with my research, with a better understanding of how this man uh, based himself on uh, these girls and really built his, you know, painted empire. I feel a bit big to say it like that, uh, but on these people and how it worked. Uh, not, you know, necessarily in a judgmental way, but in an understanding way, you know, better better insight on how he worked and um, how, let's say, anonymous his models are when he is such a big name. So uh, uh, you, you mentioned the exhibitions a little bit. So uh, your current exhibition uh, titled E.A. Hornell, A Painter Behind the Camera, which is currently on display in Duron Castle. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? And uh, what, will we, what will we be able to um, uh, enjoy <laughs> when we visit that ex exhibition? So this exhibition is a, a, a little, let's say, spin-off <laughs> of a bigger exhibition that took place in the City Arts Centre in Edinburgh in partnership between um, uh, Museum Edinburgh and um, the National Trust for Scotland. It was titled uh, E.A. Hornell from Camera to Canvas. And this exhibition really put side by side the photographs and the paintings to, to show like the correspondences between both. My little exhibition, um, so uh, a painter behind the camera, only displays photographs. I really try to bring the focus on the photographic collection. I do mention the paintings, of course, because they are very much linked, but they are about the photograph. And it is organized in uh, five rooms. Uh, 
each um, exploring a different theme, apart from the fifth room, which is a very big one. So it has two themes. <laughs> so the themes I talk about in the first room is uh, his practice, how he worked usually with photography uh, when in Scotland. Second room is um, how he staged his photographs and how you can feel some very artistic reference, uh, some very you know pictorial aspect uh, behind the photograph, as you know paintings to be. Uh, third room is about uh, his use of props and uh, how they became kind of signifiers of identity, you know, they define the person that has them um, and uh, how the use of props is really, well, often uh, related to the nationality of the uh, model posing with them. Uh, fourth room is about um, exoticism, which was a huge part of uh, Hornell's practice. Exoticism not only in you know, representing uh, foreign models, but also how this seeped in um, the, uh, the um, uh, Scottish photographs, but a different kind of exoticism, not you know, distant in, let's say, uh, space, but more distant in time, in that kind of you know, timeless place of, of um, beauty and happiness. Uh, finally, in the fifth room, uh, I touch upon uh, his interest for music and dance because we have quite a good selection of photographs depicting you know, dancers and musicians because, well, they are vectors of, you know, exoticism because it can be, you know, weird movements, instruments that are not uh, usual like the chamisen in Japan or the koto harp that, you know, made his way into his paintings after. But And then I finally... Uh, stop on it's kind of what I call uh, what do the photographs look like when um, Hornell doesn't seem to be interested in turning them into paintings and that is mostly uh, composed of photographs of men because you do have a small group well small compared to the size of the collection of uh, men that never really made their way into painting and they have a slightly different feel. That's what I conclude upon and touch upon um, in, in this last theme. And I should add very quickly that there are um, a few objects, material objects like um, uh, wood panels and uh, bowls and fans that are um, extracted from the collection of the National Trust for Scotland that we have brought in uh, with Vicky Duncan, the uh, curator, for the Northeast region to kind of supplement and inform the exhibition, uh, especially very relevant, I feel, in the props room. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. So the, uh, this again, this uh, exhibition uh, titled E.A. Honel, A Painter Behind the Camera. Uh, this uh, this is uh, currently on the, uh, on display in, in Drumcastle, Aberdeenshire. Uh, which has already started from May 1st and uh, it will continue on until the, the, until December 19th this year. Yes. Great. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Marianne. It was fascinating to talk to you, uh, your, your life and your research. And then we, we get to talk, we get to know more about uh, Honel and then <laughs> his uh, photography uh, collection. Thanks, thanks very much for your time. Well, thank you again for uh, inviting me and giving me a platform and for the very interesting discussion we had together.
This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.